This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Warren Farrell. So he is an author, political scientist, and activist. He's written several books to include The Myth of Male Power, Why Men Earn More, and the main focus of today's discussion, and that's this, The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. And that is only 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. That is in our show notes, and that is also on our website. Just go to undaunted.life backslash book list. But Warren Farrell is described as the father of the men's movement. Okay. Now that's going to be interesting to some of you if you know a little bit about his background, but I asked him about that right at the top of the overall interview. And it's just, it it was such a fun interview because this book is so unbelievably dense. If you're a father of sons, you have to read The Boy Crisis. Whether or and also for for mothers of sons, it's just such an incredible book. There's so much information there. And that's the interesting thing about this particular conversation is we couldn't get into all the different areas I wanted to get into. Okay. I did ask him about, you know, kind of his, his, passed in the na- the national organization for women and how he described himself as a feminist. But then we dig into the boy crisis and we talk about uh, the negativity that surrounds fatherhood and also what happens to boys when their dads are not around, specifically if they are dad deprived boys. We talk about, you know, basically what modernity has done to young boys, that we don't live in this area of time where we have to struggle for survival in a lot of ways and how that's a, a deleterious thing for a lot of boys. Then we talk about the purpose void for a lot of boys in modernity. They don't really have a purpose purpose to live for. But then we really do spend the majority of our time talking about dad deprived boys and kind of what it's like as a society. We've tried this experiment for for decades and decades now where we pretend as if dad isn't necessary or needed. And then we just ignore all the warning signs that tell us that he absolutely is. And then we wrapped up our discussion today by talking about rites of passage. And again, guys, this might be one of those episodes where I normally do the episode and then tell you to go read the book. You might want to go ahead and read the boy crisis and then come back to this interview because he says so many things that since I just got through reading the boy crisis, here recently, they just made so much sense to me because I've basically been marinated in this content for a long period of time. So I really, really enjoyed my time. But before we get into the discussion today, I do want to remind you about the upper room in the King's Council. So attention to all the business owners out there listening to this, or if you're an entrepreneur or soon to be entrepreneur, this message is certainly for you. So the upper room in the King's Council, their mission is to create wealth and provision for the purpose of establishing God's covenant on earth. So they do that in a myriad of different ways and they make it very, very unique and it's set up for all of you individually, but they equip entrepreneurs like you guys with the tools and systems and frameworks that are necessary in order for you to develop and deploy those given visions and talents into the marketplace. Because if you can't make it sustainable, then what good is it? And then we talk about the upper room mastermind as well. We've talked about that on this show, but for existing entrepreneurs, you need a tribe of people. You need people that think like you do that are bold, but specifically if you are a Christian that is leading a business, you need people that are king leaders that are focused on the Bible, focused on the gospel, focused on the triune God, then that's what the upper room is. Because there are a lot of mastermind uh, groups that are out there, but they don't really align with who you are as a person. But that's what the upper upper room mastermind group is. So they host virtual and in-person events uh, every month focusing on business strategies that will help you increase and sustain your revenue over the long term, but they provide accountability and a lot of other things. It's very, very customizable. If you want a little bit more information on that group, uh, go to episode 355 of this podcast. That's where I interviewed the founder. It was Riley Meek. 
He's the founder of both of these things. And the name of that episode is The King Entrepreneurship and Money. But then in that episode, Riley Meek specifically talked about how he wanted to do a specific deal for the listeners of Undaunted Life of Man's podcast, where he wanted to meet with you individually to see if this would be a good fit for you and if that would be a good relationship moving forward. That's not something that he does for a lot of other people. So what he said to do is to text Upper Room, so that's U-P-P-E-R and then Room, R-O-O-M, Upper Room to 727-472-3860. Guys, that will be in the show notes too. Do not try to do that while you're driving 727-472-3860. Text upper room to 727-472-3860 to get an application to schedule a one-on-one with Riley Meek of the upper room and the King's Council. Again, just one last time, that's upper room, U-P-P-E-R-R-O-O-M to 727-472-3860 to schedule your one-on-one with the founder of the upper room and the King's Council, Riley Meek. So guys, uh, we're so thankful to the upper room and King's Council for giving us that deal so that could be passed on to you guys. And we are unbelievably thankful to Warren Farrell and to his team for getting this scheduled. You know, it's, it's kind of difficult to get someone like that on the show to talk for any length of time. And gosh, we could have talked for way, way longer, but I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Warren Farrell, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Hey, we were having a great conversation off air and it's like, okay, we need to go ahead and hit the record button because I don't want to get all the great stuff off air. But uh, just as a means of introduction, it's always a little bit interesting because I do an intro and I kind of give everybody a little bit of an idea, but I've heard you described as the father of the men's movement. Okay. Now this might strike some people as odd, especially when they find out that you used to serve on the board for the national organization of women. You've described yourself as a feminist. So to some people that's going to seem like a little bit of oil and water situation. So if you could give us a spark notes version, the 30,000 foot view as to you and your career and why people would describe you as the father of the men's movement. Yes. Um, I, my career started in the late 1960s when, um, the women's movement surfaced. I took a really strong interest in it, changed my doctoral dissertation to focus on it. Uh, that got me um, involved in, uh, the, there was a big dispute in the National Organization for Women about whether they should have men or not. Uh, they concluded that if I could get start some men's groups to get the women out of the men out of the women's hair, uh, that and if that worked, uh, they would uh, continue to allowing allow men um, in the groups. And so I did that, and it, it worked very well. And I ended up starting some 300 men's groups and about 250 women's groups around as I spoke around the country. Um, I gave people the opportunity to do that. Um, I was very much in favor of women expanding and still am in favor of women expanding their options and being able to be as as significant in the world or do whatever they wish to do in terms of raising children, raising money, doing some combination of both. I'm still very much supportive of that. However, uh, the women's what what happened in the meantime in the last half century is that boys and men have developed significant issues that very few people are aware of to the degree um, that you know that led me to realize and as i started doing the research on that after 14 years of research that led to the boy crisis book and to understanding a lot of men's issues uh, like male only draft registration and men dying sooner out of four, on 14 out of 15 um, of the leading causes of death and you know, um, boys committing suicide increasingly as they grew older, um, up until their tw- from the age fourteen to their twenties, until it was five times as much as girls, and and boys not graduating from um, college nearly as frequently as um, as girls in, in the in the near future. Um, boys will only half the number of boys will be graduating from college as girls. 
These are major, major problems, problems for our daughters, problems for our sons. Notice I said problems for our daughters too. Mm. Um, We're all in the same family boat. And when only one sex wins, both sexes lose. And I was increasingly seeing that we were doing a great job focusing on what concerned women, but we were not doing a great job focusing on what concerns our sons, what's hurting our sons. And we were not doing a great job after divorces uh, to, to keep the father involved with the, ch- with the children. And we didn't understand how important that was um, after divorce. And we didn't understand how important it was that single mothers uh, raising children with minimal or no father involvement, uh, the problems that led to for both girls and boys, um, but particularly for boys without any male role model. And so as I began to see that, I began to speak up about that. And, um, and, and what happened was really fascinating. My, my standing ovations became sitting ovations and my five or six referrals to, to new uh, speaking engagements for each speaking engagement I did uh, dwindled down to a zero to one referral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went, you know, I, I you know, basically uh, went from 50 speaking engagements per year down to zero to one. And so it was really, uh, so I knew that it was gonna cost a great deal if I, if I started to articulate uh, men's issues and boys' issues as well as women's issues. And so, and then I increasingly saw feminism focusing on um, victim, getting a sort of victim power, saying that men were the oppressors and women were the oppressed. And that's just plain not accurate. So I started explaining why that wasn't accurate and uh, in a way that um, most um, most conservatives and most Christians got almost immediately. Um, but many uh, feminists um, just stayed with the men as the oppressors and women as the oppressed. And so um, I began to resist that. And as a result, um, you know, lost all the speaking engagement reco- uh, referrals that I got from the feminist movement. And But I, I'm able to survive and I was wanting to make sure that um, that I did what I felt was right in life. Well, and your, your work has been so, it's been such a blessing to me personally, because I followed your work for a while and I reached out to you specifically because I don't like to just reach out to people like, Hey, I want to talk to you for what reason? Oh, I don't know. Like I want to talk about something very specific and, and you brought up a lot of topics there. And unfortunately we don't have five or six hours today to get into all of them. But mm-hmm. I do want to talk about one thing just briefly, because I just got another email today and it's from these men that struggle to create men's groups. Right. And so they, they struggle with this whole concept of like, well, what do we do? Because some people, especially in the conservative Christian realm, they're like, hey, y'all just get together. Here's a book. Y'all read the book all at the same time while ignoring the fact that most men don't like to read, while ignoring the fact that most men don't like sitting in a circle and talking to a group of people that they haven't accomplished anything with. It wasn't mm-hmm. like they all just got done taking down a woolly mammoth and now they're all sitting around talking about it. It's not just like they got done, you know, charging the front lines of a, of a rival army and now the battle's over and they get to circle up and talk about it. It's just kind of like this faux male bonding thing that they just toss people into. But what have you seen? Again, we could spend all day talking about this, but just briefly, what have you seen in terms of the benefits of creating these men's groups and how to create them and make them sustainable? Yeah, very, very important point. So one of the things that um, that, that often happens is that boys grow up with minimum, uh, what I call dad deprived, um, mm-hmm. particularly if they're raised uh, by mother from the beginning and with, with either um, maybe living with a man, but w- when a man and woman get um, together and have a child and they're living together, not married, uh, that relationship lasts at only an average of three to three and a half years. And then usually the father um, is minimally involved after that in the uh, children's life. And the problem is that the 
the boy feels abandoned. He has no male role model. Uh, he doesn't, um, and the female, the, the daughter, uh, also uh, is damaged significantly by the lack of father involvement. Mm-hmm. However, the daughter, the level of intensity of the da- daughter's damage is less. Um, and so they, and when I say damage, I mean, in think uh, as parents, there's about 70 different measurements of what a, ch- a successful child is. Is the child depressed? Are they addicted to video games? Are they addicted to porn? Are they alcoholics? Are they taking drugs? Um, are they doing well in school? Are they doing well in their social skills? Are they, uh, are they, do they have friends? Do they have postponed gratification? Are they able to do things? Metrics like that. With, with minimal or no father involvement, um, daughters do worse than, um, than daughters with father involvement in more than 50 areas, um, actually 70 areas, but 50 major areas. And uh, boys uh, also do worse in 50 plus areas, but they do significantly worse than their daughters, their, than, than, our, than our daughters do. Boys without male role models um, and with, with, in broken families tend to have many um, uh, challenges with um, depression and with not knowing who they are, being failures to launch, um, not having that good postponed gratification and not having discipline, not having motivation, not having a sense of purpose, a sense of mission. And so um, why this is the case is, you know, why these outcomes was, the, for me, the most fascinating stuff that I found when I was doing the research for the Boy Crisis book. Um, I didn't realize the degree of that. Um, but as, as I've been sort of talking about that, um, many parents are very, especially moms, they feel well. You know, they recognize that the you know the, they're, the if they are not in an intact family and the dad is minimally involved, they you know, they recognize that their son should have positive male role models. Well, one of the ways of getting a positive male role model is having your is um, for you to evaluate uh, the minister, the priest, the rabbi, the imam. Uh, let's say it's a minister. And uh, make sure that she, that he's a, he that there's a male minister mm-hmm. uh, or a male um, sub minister at a big church uh, that would take care of creating um, boy groups for your son um, and groups for your son to get together with other boys about his age. And uh, so, for example, the one of the things that is done in some of these groups is that uh, the the minister um, might pass out a a, a mask and have a, all the boys fill out. Um, on that mask, um, what you know, the way they present themselves to the world. And then on the back of the mask, their inner feelings and fears that they have, their insecurities that they have, the way they really feel inside. Mm. There's always an enormous gap. And, and the guarantee ahead of time is that no one will have to, no, nobody else in the room will see this, in the group will see this, uh, unless the, that, that person um, uh, volunteers that that's their mask. And so, um, so then all the masks are read on the outside, how the boy presents himself and what he's feeling on the inside. And what the boy sees is that almost everybody presents themselves as strong on the outside and feels insecure on the inside. Well, when a boy sees that six other, seven other boys all feel exactly that same way, they suddenly don't feel so alone with those insecurities. Mm-hmm. And so they don't really need to be, they see how silly that mask is because everybody's experiencing it. Um, and, and so that's just one of many, many examples that a confidential, 
and I'm when I say confidential, I mean confidential that what is said in that group is not said by anybody outside of the group. It's not said, well, you know, John in that group said, you know, this about himself and, you know, ha, 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 let's laugh mm. and mock him. Uh, then that, that then that moves most young boys back into a fear of speaking up their real truths again. And so for, for you as a, as a dad um, or a mom and getting male, good male role models in your son's life, um, what I found is very important is that is to understand the history of masculinity. And the history of masculinity is that, that throughout all of evolution, among animals, among um, um, insects, um, women chose males to, to, to reproduce with that were alpha males, that were protector males. And, um, and that worked very well for the safety of the children. That worked very well for the safety of the community. How, and, and an example of that is that every generation had its, had its war. And during that war, Uncle Sam or um, some equivalent said some version of, um, you know, we need you to fight in this war so that, that we will not be taken over by Nazis, for example. Mm -hmm. And boys, when, when boys and young men were told they were needed, uh, they responded. Um, and they responded by being willing to be to being willing to die so that everyone else would live. Every generation of boys who was asked to to be will to die recognized that being willing to be disposable was very much okay with them if mm -hmm. they could save women, if they could save children, if they could save the society. The problem with that is the process that it takes to learn to be disposable disconnects you from your feelings and your fears. And that's good for the society to have saviors like that. Mm -hmm. But boys that are disconnected from their feelings and their fears, they start still feeling those, but it all piles up inside of them. They start putting on masks of strength. Uh, that no one else can see. And after a while, they become disconnected from their feelings and their fears um, so that they don't even recognize that they have them. Um, and, and, and that becomes toxic for boys. Uh, they often times start drinking or, or withdrawing into video games. And boys are far more likely to be addicted to video games than girls are. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, if, they, if they don't have father involvement, they usually don't do nearly as well in school. Uh, they don't do as well on the track team or the football team or, uh, or as actors or musicians. They don't have the, dis the discipline to create the outcomes that they need. And therefore, they start to um, uh, not be very attractive. If they start dro dropping out of school, getting bad grades, if they don't have a, they're a failure to launch, they're living in their parents' basement, uh, they're on an unemployment line. Um, girls who are looking for future, young women who are looking for future fathers, uh, they don't search on unemployment lines. Mm -hmm. They don't search in parents' basement to see boys that are living at home. Uh, they, they don't, uh, they want boys who are winners, not losers. And as boys um, don't perform effectively, they experience themselves as losers and girls make it clear to them that that's not the, their first choice for, uh, for males to, 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 to date. If they're really tall and handsome, the women will date them and have sex with them, but they won't um, go to the next step of having a long-term relationship, getting married and having children with them. They'll eventually get rejected. So the boys who get rejected, they often turn to pornography because pornography is access to a variety of attractive women by the boy without fear of rejection 
at a price he can afford. And so um, he, he then begins to get addicted to porn. And when he gets addicted to porn, there's many problems with that. But one of those problems is that he becomes desensitized to normal sexuality with a, with a, and, and, um, and intimate um, communication skills with a, with a complex uh, woman. And, um, and so um, he just starts treating the woman like a sex object if he ever does have a connection with a woman. And the result of that is the woman feels treated like an, an object, like a porn object. Um, and she resents that and withdraws because she should. Um, and then he feels rejected. Um, and the result is that everybody loses. Um, and, and so these are just some examples of the problems that boys face when they have minimal or no father involvement uh, that I you know, found when I um, you know, did the boy crisis. And this is despite the fact that many single mothers, they're among the hardest working people in the, in the, in the, in the culture. And they, uh, they work very hard to make things good for their sons. They're oftentimes feel overwhelmed. Uh, they, you know, they, they, they don't have enough time to be able to be number one at work. And they, uh, they often feel guilty that they're not taking care of their children to the degree that they should be able to take care of their children. They feel caught between a rock and a hard place and, as I said, overwhelmed. And so um, we need to make sure that fathers are inspired, to be, that we, we tell fathers that they are needed because when men are told that they are needed, they are even willing to, as we saw, die. Uh, to respond and to being needed. And we're not giving that message to fathers these days. The only people that are doing that is the Christians are doing and Mormons are doing a much better job of that than most people. Uh, but particularly on the political left, um, it's all about women and girls. And it's not about, um, about understanding that we're all in the same family boat. And as I said before, when only one sex wins, both sexes lose. Absolutely. And I think you brought up so many great things there. And, and most of that, guys, again, it is in this book, The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. It's a book that you co-wrote with John Gray. I think it was back in 2018. Thank you again for shooting me this copy. You brought up so many things there. So it would be, I don't want to give short shrift to anything because there's so many of, of these things that I do want to talk about. But you said something right there at the end that I want to key in on because uh, a buddy of yours, Jordan Peterson, I know you've been on his show and in those things like that. This is something that he did here recently that has been very impactful for for me, but also to a lot of Christians, when he did that YouTube video where it was the, you know, the message to the, to the American church or message to the Christian church, he was basically talking about men and young boys, specifically young boys, how churches should basically have big neon signs saying, we're here for you, come in, we need you, those types of things. But I've been in the men's ministry space for, for a long time, you know, not nearly as long as you've been in the men's space, but I've been doing this for quite a while. And the thing that I see, Warren, is the exact opposite of that. Most churches may as well have a blinking neon sign outside that says, this is not for you. We didn't have you in mind when we picked out the music. We didn't have you in mind when we picked out the sermon content. You are not needed here. And then they're shocked, Warren, whenever the volunteers are almost all women, when the people that want to go on the mission trips are all women, when women and their children go to church and their fathers are somewhere else hunting or at the shooting range or shooting baskets or getting ready for another fantasy football draft or watching porn or playing video games or whatever. So talk to me a little bit more about what you've seen because churches are the only places that seem to, to put an emphasis on that, as you mentioned, but my goodness, it's like they're slow on the uptake because it's like so many churches have a dearth of men and they look around as if it's not their fault. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well said. And it is true 
that the churches and the Christian community have a much better understanding of the importance of families and the importance of fathers than probably any other portion of the society um, does have. Um, and at the same time, the church is not conducted in such a way that is user-friendly to men. Um, user-friendly to men means things that are, it means having males participate um, in the process. Um, not, not men are not good at listening to lectures. To, um, they don't learn well by listening. Men learn well by doing. And so it is, it's very important for uh, the Christian community to be able to, um, to sponsor, um, out, you know, outings that, uh, that involve the children and the fathers and the mothers, uh, where they're, where they're camping, where they're doing things and, you know, they're around a fireplace, uh, you know, during, during camping, where they're, uh, where they're getting men involved in projects to work with children. Um, so that we, we need in the Christian community to establish ways of involve evolving fathers that we that ask and of the fathers to 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 do things uh, we need to have an under, the christian community needs to um, share with um, fathers why exactly what they do that is different from what mothers do that leads to children who have what i call checks and balance parenting mm. that is the best of father style parenting and the best of mother style parenting those are the children that do the best, but churches and no place in the, you know, I, I have in the boy crisis book, many, many areas of the differences between dad style parenting and mom style parenting. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so when a, when a, when a father goes to church and, um, and he doesn't hear that roughhousing is really positive for his, mm -hmm. for his children, um, he doesn't feel supported in his style of parenting. So for example, you know, a dad will typically, um, you know, maybe let's say he has three children, two sons and a daughter, and he'll, you know, throw them on the couch and say, okay, you know, kids, your, your turn is, uh, your job is to jump on my back and pin me down before I pin the three of you down. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, and the kids go, all right, dad, well, good, you know, can't wait to do this. And, and, and a bond is beginning to cr be created between the dad and the children, which is a very important bond, which I'll talk more about in a moment. But the mom, you know, is understandably, you know, off, off watching this and saying, oh my God, you know, I, I think that if they roughhouse like that, you know, sooner or later, somebody's going to get hurt. Well, it's only about 99% likely that she's right. Um, and, you know, and somebody gets hurt. And then, the, you know, the mom feels guilty that she didn't say something sooner because, you know, she intuitively knew that she should have paid attention to her intuition. But on the other hand, she didn't want to be controlling. And she saw the kids were having fun and she's caught between the rock and a hard place on that issue. And, but she says, okay, now one of the children have gotten hurt. Okay. Dad's taking care of that and saying, you know, don't do that again. Um, but, you know, so now dad has learned his lesson. But no, dad goes back to the roughhousing after he gets a promise from the kid, kids that they won't behave so aggressively again, or they'll think of their children, you know, they won't stick their elbow in their sister's eye. Um, and so the, uh, and mom goes, oh God, you know, it, you know dad hasn't learned. Um, and so the, um, and, and then the, the dad goes back to the roughhousing and sure enough, mom's right again, uh, you know, that one of the kids gets hurt again. And so now dad says some, now though, dad says usually, um, you know, okay, I gave you a warning. That's the end of the roughhousing. We won't roughhouse again until maybe, let's say it's Sunday night now. We won't roughhouse again until Wednesday or some time later when you've been really good. Um, I'll go back to the roughhousing with you. And mom goes, great that you stopped, but you're going to go back to the process that hurt the children twice. Mm. But no one understands that when the dad 
goes back to that process on, let's say, Wednesday night. And then the children violated, uh, then the children are calculating differently. Mm. Now they know that if they push their brother and sister aside, that they're going to lose the rough housing that they want to lose, uh, that they want to have. And so therefore they don't, they have to think of their sister's feelings and their brother's feelings and their brother's fears and, and what would hurt their brothers. They have to make distinctions between what's aggressive and what's assertive. Um, in order to get what they want, the roughhousing. So what's happening here is a, is multiple, and each each of the male-female differences, dad-mom differences in parenting styles, has some parallel to this. But so just to, so to to make it really clear what this what this is entails, what's happening here in the roughhousing is first, dad is creating a bond with the kids, mm-hmm. and that makes the kids want to do what dad asks to do. Right. Secondly. He's not just setting boundaries, like if you do that uh, and the roughhousing, he's enforcing boundaries, which is when they violate that and they hurt their brother and sister, he ends the roughhousing for a while um, uh, so that the children know that they will lose something when they're not considerate of their brothers and sisters' feelings or their the friends that are invited over his feelings. And so the result of that is that the, the, the data shows that the children who roughhouse in this type of way with the father are more likely to become empathetic. That is, you know, if a dad said to a mom, you know, I want to roughhouse with the children so the children will become more empathetic. Like that's the most, you know, counterintuitive and re- seems like the most ridiculous <laughs> statement possible. Right. Um, but what's happening there, as you can see, is the children are now being required to think about someone else other than their needs and and immediate gratification. Secondly, the children are learning postponed gratification. They'd like to push their brother and sister aside to win at the roughhousing, but Mm -hmm. if they do, they're gonna lose the roughhousing. So now they have to think about their brothers and sisters' feelings, not exercise immediate gratification in order to be able to get the long-term postponed gratification of the roughhousing. So they're learning postponed gratification. Postponed gratification is the single biggest predictor of success or failure in life. Postponed gratification is the single biggest predictor of success or failure in life. And they're learning that. They're learning empathy. Empathy is one of the most important character development traits that a human being can have, and every Christian knows this. Um, And that is uh, also what they're learning in the process. They're building a bond with their dad that makes it less, makes them resent less going along and paying attention to their dad because their dad is their source of fun and excitement, and they want to not alienate their source of fun and excitement. So these are just a few, and when a boy and girl has this postponed gratification, they tend to be able to fulfill the dreams that they have. If they're a good basketball player, football player, actor, musician, uh, artist, writer, uh, they they can exercise the discipline uh, that emanates from postponed gratification. Mm then they feel good about themselves. And then teachers praise them, the parents praise them, uh, um, their peers uh, respect them. Um, girls date winners, not losers. Girls, if they're, they're a boy, uh, are, are, are very happy to date uh, the winners and not so happy to date the losers. And so and at every level, they feel better about themselves. 
um, and that uh, leads to a, a life where they're less likely to withdraw into drugs, drinking, uh, video game addiction, and, um, and, and feel angry at themselves inside. Well, and a lot of that information that you shared there, Warren, that, that's the reason we have a book list on our website called the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. Mm-hmm. And we have a boyhood section and the boy crisis pr- is prominently featured in that section. And part of the reason is because this is a obvious, it's a must read if you have sons. So I have a two year old and a six month old, both sons. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a must read for where I'm at currently in my life. But also if you have daughters, because you learn about the expectations of the type of male you should want welcomed into the life of your young da- daughter. But there was a quote from the middle. Oh, one other quick thing. There was a, a picture from the book that I showed to my wife and she thought it was amazing. It was a picture of a dad that's like throwing a kid up in the air. And then it's like, yeah, it's like, it's the actual picture where the kids, you know, maybe two feet away from his arms. And then there's what the kid thinks. And it's that he's like 10 feet above dad. And then there's what the mom sees. And it's that the kid's basically off in outer space. And I showed that to my wife because she, you know, she gets on me sometimes. She's like, oh my gosh, you're going to hurt those boys. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm going to protect these boys. But I thought that was a great uh, picture oral representation of what we were trying to say there. But there was a quote somewhere around the middle of the book that I think is interesting because it goes into a lot of the things that you, you lay out in a very, like, I love all the references in the book because you lay it out in a very uh, academic manner, the problems that we're seeing with boys. So let me read this quote here. But since, as we've seen, the boy crisis is a problem in all 63 of the largest developed nations, chances are it's not your fault. Rather, it is the fault of problems that have infiltrated millions of families in developed countries. Problems created, ironically, by a good thing, easier access to the means of survival. So this reminds me of the poem that I can't remember who it's attributed to, but it's hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create hard times. And I feel like we're in the cycle right now, Warren, where we have a lot of weak men in culture and society at large, whether in politics and in business and in entertainment, these weak men, these weak willed, mealy mouthed men creating these unbelievable hard times for people all over the globe, that they're actually getting in the way of capital P progress, you know, as we see the progress of time going forward. But specifically, this is a major major detriment to the development overall of our boys because we're making it easier for them to not help dad out with the business because dad travels for a living or dad works remotely and he basically sits in his underwear all day staring at a screen and he doesn't have to go out in the field and help. He can get just as much dopamine in his brain from playing football with his thumbs on a PlayStation as opposed to going out and playing pickup football and you spend a lot of time talking about pickup sports inside of that book. But talk to me a little bit about that continuing that we're on right now where times have gotten so unbelievably easy for us when it comes to the attainment of a mate or of food or of just generalized comfort and how that's actually having a deleterious effect on us. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the broader picture here is that throughout all of history, boys were brought up with a purpose. Um, Today, they have what I call a purpose void. Okay, let's go back to the purpose. The purpose throughout all of history was when a boy um, was becoming a man, um, somebody said, for example, you know, there's Uncle Joe. He was in the Marines. He died in the Marines in the Second World War. Um, he was really a hero, a great man. Yes, he died when he was 19, but uh, and that's why we should really respect and honor him. And here this boy is being criticized by dad, mom, and maybe peers, and feels, okay, I have a way of really being a hero. And so I'm going to, you know, train myself to, to be a, a great Marine um, and, you know, and, 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 and everybody will respect me. Well, he may die sooner, um, but he ends up feeling like that, that's, that's his purpose. 
Now, maybe he didn't go into the armed services, and um, but it, he learned that you know um, that he's needed as a, a provider protector, um, and as a provider, he would he'll be the one that has to earn the money. So he's a goofball in tenth grade, ninth grade, but around eleventh grade, he realizes if he doesn't go to college, if he doesn't get his act together, he's going to be a loser. So he gets his act, he begins to get his act together together in my class, uh, high school graduating class. Uh, you know, most of the guys turned around around the eleventh grade, um, and they, they started getting their act together to get ready for college. Um, and they knew that they'd be losers if they didn't. Um, and so, the, the, um, or they went into some type of vocation uh, where they could at least make a decent living if they weren't academically inclined. Mm -hmm. And so, but now um, two things have changed. We need fewer people in war than we used to die as soldiers than we used to. So many boys are experiencing a purpose void in that area. And we need few um, women are doing a much better job at sharing the burdens of economic responsibility than they used to uh, be. And so now boys um, may may or may not be needed to supply income at the level that, uh, but never at the level of uh, it's absolutely mandatory for every boy to do that for any woman that he wants at all, because some women are doing a good job with that himself. So those are good news things. We want fewer boys to be killed in war. And it's wonderful when women and men are sharing the responsibilities for earning income. However, it's left boys with a purpose void. Now that purpose void has a purpose opportunity. Um, and that is that when a boy, uh, when a mom and dad look at their son, um, and they have the freedom to say, you know, who are you, my son, not just a future disposable male, or climb some type of corporate ladder to earn money as a human doing, but not as a human being. Mm. We, are, we care about you as a human being, and because women are sharing more of the economic responsibilities, you have some freedom to be able to not just have to produce all the money. When you have to produce all the money, what you end up doing is not doing things that are fulfilling, because fulfilling occupations almost never pay um, as much as less fulfilling occupations do, mm -hmm. because the more fulfilling the occupation, like artist or writer or musician, the more people want to do that. And therefore, the more competition there is for that, the the uh, supply uh, the supply goes up and the in relation to the demand. And therefore, the price that you get paid as a teacher um, goes down or as a, a musician or artist or writer, the, hence the word starving artist. Mm -hmm. And so so, but now with women sharing more of that responsibility, the boy maybe has an, a chance to um, be able to teach in an elementary school if that's what his, his, his passion is. We're able to talk to our sons about passion. That, that was never a word that we could talk to our sons about. But if our children are nurtured to have passion without discipline, then the more passionate fulfilling the occupation, the more it requires discipline to be at the very top of that field in order to survive. If you're a basketball player, in order to get a good income, you have to be on the NBA or, um, or the WNBA in order to have a good income as an actor, as a writer, 
Um, I know as, a, as an author, uh, there's only about, you know, one tenth of 1% of authors that can make a living doing that. Mm. And so that requires an enormous amount of discipline. I get up at five in the morning to work on my books uh, that, that I'm working on. That's not what I, the ideal time for me to get up. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, you know, that's what's needed to write a good, responsible book and then promote it to the degree of be, it being able to be un, available, uh, aware. So those are the things that our sons have the opportunity to do. But as a rule, moms tend to see the, the child's, the children's gifts, particularly the gifts of the son, and then encourage the children uh, to fulfill, to do their, to pursue their gifts, but often do not require them to, 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 to hold up to their end of the bargain in relation to what the parents can give. I'll give an example of that. Um, if a, you know, a boy is, let's say, going to basketball practice or music, music, music practice and, or soccer practice and wants to become a professional soccer player and, um, and, and the, the father and mother are, are getting special tutoring and uh, taking them to and from the classes and they're really breaking their backs to allow the child to have, to have exceptional skills in this area. And then the child says, you know, um, you know I, yes, I want to be on the Olymp- in the Olympics, um, but you know, I, I have a, an invitation to go to um, a friend's birthday party, and the parents think, well, we want the child to go to the friend's birthday party, um, and then we want the child to be able to play that new video game if he or she wants to, and before you know it, the child is not focused on the discipline that's necessary mm-hmm. to become outstanding in, in his or her field, and dad says something like, you know, sweetie, you know, you can go ahead and not become an Olympic gymnast, but if your desire is to become Olympic an Olympic gymnast, you won't have a chance to have a life outside of that that's that's well developed, and you'll become you know here's the downsides of that. Um, but if you choose that, and we're going to take you to all these um, these games and these places to to compete, and we're going to pay for special tutoring and things like that for you and work harder, then you have to have your end of the bargain as well. Mm-hmm. And then the child may have cry, and mom would say, "Oh, that's so mean. We can't, we can't make the child cry like that." You know, that's that's you know, you have to think of the the value to the child of of you know going to this to his friend's birthday party and so on. There's a lot of value to the child in, in that, um, but if the child's goal is is the other, then the child has to learn trade offs and sacrifices and choices to make. And and then um, if the parents are going to cooperate in making that possible, and that's so that's so this type of communication needs to happen between the father, the mother, and the child, and that's why in the Boy Crisis book I talk about the importance of family dinner nights and structuring those family dinner nights in such a way as so they don't become family dinner nightmares. So everybody can hear, hear each other effectively. So everyone knows how to listen very effectively to each other's perspectives and feelings. And there's um, and then the parental communication, the father and mother communicating with each other in a way that allows the father to hear, um, you know, is it worth making the, our son or daughter cry or miss uh, miss miss a parent, uh, miss social opportunities to become an Olympic gymnast? And are we encouraging them too much to that? And um, and the, and the father saying, well, here's the trade-offs, and and that all requires very subtle and caring communication, which both the mother and the father understand the best intent of the other parent, and that the mother and father listen so carefully to allow the best intent 
to be um, to 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 know that their that their best intent is being heard, and that's and what I just said to to do when a mother and father are communicating different things that they feel is um, right for the child, both of them feel criticized. And one of the things that I've done for the last 30 years is couples communication workshops to allow fathers and mothers to know how to be able to handle the perspectives of the other parent in such a way um, that they can, um, that the other parent feels fully heard and seen rather than do what we biologically do naturally, which is when we hear ourselves being criticized, we respond to criticism defensively. That's biologically natural to do because when we heard, when, when people thousands of years ago heard criticisms, they thought it was a possible enemy and it was functional for survival to get up their defenses, to be able to defeat the enemy before the enemy defeated them. And so he, he, um, be, being defensive was functional for survival, but it's just dysfunctional for intimacy and for love. And so we have to really learn to do an evolutionary shift of hearing everyone in the family's perspectives, both to keep the family together, but also to train everyone to know how to hear the perspectives that are different from theirs. When you get into a lot of detail into all those things in the book, and just to go back to, I think, an important point when you were talking about family dinner nights, you give some, I guess, modules in here of some ways that you could help structure those family dinner nights, which I know may strike some people as odd because it's like, well, we need to make it organic. It's like, well, you can you can give scaffolding to something and it can still be organic. And so you do that throughout the book, which I found to be very, very important. Now, one thing earlier on in this discussion, Warren, you talked about dad-deprived boys. You, you use that phrase specifically. So I'm going to read a couple of quotes from the book because I think this this might be the most valuable thing that we talk about today because you're talking to a whole heck of a lot of dads right now. So here's a quote. The boy crisis's primary cause is dad-deprived boys. Dad deprivation stems primarily from the lack of father involvement and secondarily from devaluing what a father contributes when he is involved, which is wildly important. Whether our children become financially rich or poor or emotionally rich or poor depends increasingly on whether they grow up dad-rich or dad poor. And then, you know, this is in a section of the book where you're talking about kind of the three main reasons for this, the purpose void, dad deprived boys, and then also the heroic intelligence and how that undermines health intelligence. But there's another quote here that might be my favorite quote of the entire book because it's so haunting. And it's this, dads like moms, air and water are essential to our lives, but we've tried to live without dads. We haven't tried to live without moms, air or water. I find that to be true into my bones. I find that to be true, but we see that. You don't have to be like, a, especially astute observer of society to see that we would never denigrate moms or air or water or any of those essential things. But we look at dads as if they're just this Al Bundy, Phil Dumphy thing that we can just kind of flick off into the ether and we don't really need them. The government can be daddy. Okay. As long as the kids are with mom, the government can be daddy or no one can be daddy and it's just fine. But every shred of sociological data point to a much, much different outcome for these children. So there are a lot of things that you can point to Warren that you could basically hang around the neck of the boy crisis. But the number one thing you say is dad deprived boys is leading to that. Why? Yes. First of all, um, exactly the case. And I didn't start out with this belief. When I submitted to the, my publisher for the boy crisis, I had 10 causes of the boy crisis, and each of them were going to take approximately an equal amount of space. Mm-hmm. And, and I constantly found that the 
other causes were not nearly as important if the de- if there was an involved dad. So for example, um, if a boy grew up with an involved dad and an involved mom, um, and he went to a school that had minimal amount of uh, teachers that were males, um, there were, and if you, if you control for the school that has a few male teachers with one that has more male teachers, the children do slightly better in the more male teacher school. Um, but um, if, the, if the child grew up with um, only a mom as the primary role model, and it was a boy, and the boy went from um, a, a, a mom-only home to a female teacher-only school and having very few role models or a role model that he couldn't identify with in, in, the, in the school, those boys did significantly worse. And when I say significantly worse, I don't mean just on grades. Um, I do mean on grades and especially on reading and writing, but not um, which are the biggest predictors of the biggest academic predictors of success or failure. Postponed gratification is the biggest social political uh, social um, predictor of success or failure in every other area. But the um, but those boys um, uh, those boys had um, significant problems, and so I began to see that basically that the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. And so then it became my, my next goal for the, book, for the boy crisis book was to, to say, okay, then exactly what do dads do that's different from what moms do that leads to the children doing so much better when they have both dads and moms involved? And I started seeing like these differences that I mentioned before, like roughhousing or teasing. And I, I know I was thinking, you know, teasing, then the child cries because the child is teased. That's not good. Well, as it turns out, it is good up to a point. And the value of the saying the up to the point is because moms tend to, to, to err in the direction of not teasing a child if the child will cry. Um, and dads t- sometimes will err in the direction, especially if there's a mom around, of, um, of not minding if the child cries um, because the child is learning something from being teased. Um, and so it's, it, that's a worthwhile dialogue between mom and dad. What's, what's too much? What's, what's not enough? And what is the value of teasing to begin with? Well, almost nobody can explain that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started to explain what the value of, in, of teasing was in the Boy Crisis book. What's the value? of risk-taking. Um, you know, every, we, we talk about there being glass ceilings out there, um, you know, of women rarely being the CEOs of corporations. Well, uh, or, you know, almost all the inventions that we that we have are male in, inventions that, that really make it big, like, you know, the, the, our iPhones and everything else and on the internet have mostly been invented by males. So what's behind that? Almost all those males who do those inventions and start companies, and many of them fail, they're all risk takers. But we don't teach our daughters to take to do risk taking right. um, nearly as well as we should. We, you know, when it comes to sexuality, for example, we always talk about you know the the STDs or how bad sexuality is. Um, and this way, you could get pregnant. This this could happen. That could happen. That's a good discussion. Um, but we don't talk about the fact that. Um, that you know, if we're if there's these fears around sexuality, uh, that girls who are growing up need to share the risk taking involved in that, 
and the risk taking and the fear of rejection that comes with taking sexual risks, being the one to reach out and ask the boy out, uh, being the one to pay for the boy rather than the boy paying for them, being the one to do the first hand holding of the first kiss. These are all risks that, of rejection that boys experience. Those risks of rejection that boys experience teach boys how to risk rejection in life. Um, it's unfair that we're not teaching our daughters to do that equally and to share those responsibilities. Um, and so risk-taking has some very important prerequisites to be able to take the risks in life to be entrepreneurs. And so if we're going to not just say, oh, women are entrepreneurs equally to men, we've got to you know, have affirmative action to boost them up and give them more chance. One of the ways we can really boost them up is by giving them training to do risk-taking uh, when they're young in the area where, mo where most fear of rejection, that is in, in, in sexuality um, in the younger years when, when people are petrified of um, being rejected by the other sex. And see, so these are just some of you know, many, many areas that, that, dads, are more that are, dads are likely to contribute to the family. And, and there's another major reasons dads should be contributing to the family. It is not fair for women to have all the burden of, of of responsibility on their back, women are overwhelmed when they have uh, when they have the responsibilities of their children versus and the responsibilities of of, of producing money. Um, we need dads to step up and share those responsibilities, and that means. Um, you know, uh, in, uh, inspiring, which is something that churches can do, inspiring fathers to be involved and getting and understanding from the Boy Crisis book what dads do that is different from what moms do and having the church honor and practice some of those behaviors, um, ha having projects for fathers to do with children, having fathers participate in the services rather than listen to sermons. Um, as I mentioned before, sermons are not ways of drawing men to you. Um, um, ask men to give a sermon, you'll have him involved. Um, but ask him to listen to a ser sermon, and you'll have him turned off unless he wants to run for a political office in the community and he wants to be respected in the community, uh, then he'll um, attend church. But it's often not for him. It's for the respect that he needs to have the political office. There's so much good stuff there. And one thing I think that this leads to as well, and we'll make this last question of the day because I know we're running up against time, but it's this idea that in modernity, we don't have rites of passage for young boys that, you know, see their way into manhood uh, with, with the exception of a few uh, sects of religions here and there. There's not really this definition where the community says, Hey, now you are a man because of this, this, and this, there's no discussion of, Hey, here are the things that I see in you that are amazing. And what, you'll do great as a man. Here's also some things that you're going to have to contend with that are part of your personality and your wiring that you have to be aware of. But also here are all the responsibilities that we expect of you now, not only as a household, but as, as a greater community and those types of things. We don't see that at all. And so what we see, Warren, and obviously you know this, is that little boys will self-identify or self-actualize or, or self-initiate themselves into manhood. So they get to choose. It was the first time I had sex. It was whenever I bought my own vehicle. Oh, it's whenever I moved away to college. Oh, it's whenever I turned 18. And they just pick it 
or whenever I was jumped into the gang or whenever I joined ISIS, you talk about ISIS a lot in your book. Like those are the types of things that I, I find very, very concerning, especially for these dads that are the mail it in dads that are just the set it and forget it dads. They're not spending a lot of time with their kids. They're not helping them develop. But for, for those dutiful fathers, they're, they need some help and trying to figure out some things that they can do for their sons to help their sons understand, Hey, this is where you are now. But if I'm, if I'm being honest, I'm surrounded by a bunch of dudes that didn't have that. And so they've had to reckon with what manhood is in their own life. I look at my own father, his father was taken away from him when he was 13 years old, killed by a drunk driver. And so at the same time, he's learning to be a young man, his man is taken away from him. And then that's not, you know, a rare occurrence inside the culture that we have because of death, divorce and everything else. But talk to me a little bit about, about rites of passage, because I find that to be an enormous uh, need for our society, for the overall uh, production of our young boys and obviously just their overall development. Yes. Rites of passage are very helpful for boys. However, the real rite of passage is cumulative and incremental and every day preparing right. a boy for, you know, we're cooking dinner. Here's what you can do to help based on your age. We're, we're cleaning up after dinner. Uh, you know, when I was growing up and we, my family moved to Switzerland and we went, we had, we weren't that wealthy, but we had one dinner at a really good restaurant with tablecloths. That was unusual for us. And, um, and I was so trained to clean the dishes off the, my dishes off the table when we finished that I started taking the dishes off the table, you know, in this really fine restaurant. And my parents got a kick out of that. But, but that was because not of a rite of passage, but every day it was a rite of passage, learning incrementally the responsibilities that I was expected to do as a boy to, that was becoming a man. And when there is, and so, so having so one of the things that really is so important, I think, in the Boy Crisis book is the is all the things that fathers and mothers working together can do to help create a responsible, motivated boy with postponed gratification, a lot of discipline, high expectations that is cumulative and changing and being discussed by mom and dad. So there's two super important things. One is that incremental training for responsibility in our sons. And number two is, uh, no, uh, three things. Number two is dads, you must know what you contribute to children's development. And you must communicate that with moms because moms can't hear what dads don't say. Mm. Moms, you must seek that out. You must seek out if you're if you're reading the Boy Crisis book. Really dig into what dads do that's different. As a rule, sometimes roles are reversed than what you do, and what exactly the value is. So that and then let dads know the biological father know that now you understand why he is needed. Please come and help. Let dad know that you know not only that he's needed, but why he is needed. Men work with specifics. And then, um, and then once you have the father or a stepfather, which is not nearly as helpful, but you can do as you can have a stepfather be very good or very, very minimally helpful, and um, is to know how to communicate with their, that dad about 
the difference between your style and his style so that both of you are able to hear each other and do the best checks and balance parenting possible. I, I mentioned to you off, off before the show that I've created a um, I've finally been able to take the couples communication workshop that I've been doing for 30 years and and put that online uh, via Zoom so that if, if there's somebody that is uh, a couple that would like to have better communication, uh, they're, they're welcome to go on the warrenferrell.com website, uh, my website, and go to the couples communication tab and just um, get a copy of that. And um, and if you if you go through it and it and it work it doesn't work for you just let me know I'll give you the money back it's not much money but it's um, it's really the best thing I've ever done in my life is being able to put that couples communication course online uh, so that it will be available to couples to to have at a much more reasonable cost. Well, I absolutely appreciate that. And uh, we will be having you back on to talk about that because I want to check it out for myself because it's always a good thing to focus on your communication with your spouse if that's going to be the most important relationship in your life. But we covered a lot of ground today. And again, guys, I cannot recommend The Boy Crisis enough. We didn't even scratch the surface on most of the stuff that was in this book. So I really, really appreciate this book and the work that you've done. But that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? (laughs) <laughs> no, that's just wonderful talking with you. I really love your your spirit and your um, enthusiasm, your straightforwardness, your um, uh, your questions, your, the fact that you read the book, um, and and then also your ability to listen. It's really a, a wonderful combination, Kyle. Well, if you're going to send me a book and it, it, it doesn't have many pictures in it, I, I guess I have to read the words. That's just kind of <laughs> how it goes. But Warren Farrell, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. It's been a, a really, really, it's been a pleasure. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Warren Farrell. I certainly did. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. And one just uh, last reminder here, text Upper Room. Again, we're talking about the Upper Room in the King's Council. Text Upper Room to 727-472-3860 to get your application to schedule a one-on-one with Riley Meek, who is the founder of the Upper Room in the King's Council. But the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to Warren's website. So if you want to get any of his books or look into any of the other stuff that he mentioned on the show, that is a great place for you. And then specifically, I've got a link to where you can go and buy your own copy of The Boy Crisis. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.